You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. On March 14, 1970, something took place on a U.S. ship that had not taken place in over 150 years. Mutiny. Mutiny where those who were supposed to be under the charge of a captain had turned on their captain, holding their captain at gunpoint and forcing 24 other of their crew members to get off the boat in lifeboats and to be abandoned at sea, two men commandeered the ship, Columbia Eagle. Columbia Eagle was being used to transport 10,000 tons of napalm to be used in the Vietnam War when Clyde McKay and Alvin Glotowski held their captain at this gunpoint. They steered towards the neutral nation of Cambodia After arriving in port, these mutineers informed the authorities that they had indeed seized the ship and its cargo as an act of protest against the Vietnam War. The problem for McKay and Glotowski was that their arrival in Cambodia coincided with the start of a civil war that led to the rise of a pro-American republic. They were initially given asylum but they found themselves eventually prisoners of the prime minister. Kotowski was later released and surrendered at the U.S. Embassy, as well as the ship returned to America. But McKay, however, escaped from the Cambodian custody along with U.S. Army deserter named Larry Humphrey. Mr. Humphrey and Mr. Kotowski, or rather Mr. McKay, joined with the communist Rouge group. They were the freedom fighters in order to champion their cause, only to have the freedom fighters execute them. Let that sink in. The people who had offered them freedom eventually turned on them and no longer offered freedom, but actually executed them and took their lives. Well, this is not the first time this has happened in history. From sports teams to naval ships to students in the classroom, there have been many examples of those who were under authority and wrestled authority from those who had it under the promise of freedom, only to find themselves mistaken with grave consequences. And that is exactly what's happening in the book of Galatians. Would you please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 as we see the temptation towards spiritual mutiny. We return back to a text, a text that really shows this theological mutiny that Paul the Apostle has on his hands, the way that people are being led from Christ to an alternative Christ. People that doubted and wondered if 
faith really was enough or if they needed to be adding something to that, some type of religious work. Keep the Jesus, but add the works to it. We return back to our text in which we were in last week, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. If you're just joining us, we're not with us last week. Notice that the title of this text is The Pleasure and the Pain of Pastoral Ministry, Part 2. So fear not. If you were not with us, you'll not be left behind. We'll come back to the text now. Now, really, here's the, the main point of what we see in this text. It's that Christians are tempted to leave their sonship and go back to their slavery to the confusion and pain of their pastors. That really is the main point. Christians are tempted to leave their sonship and go back to their slavery to the confusion and pain of their pastors. As I said to you last week, we are going to take one lap around the text textually and then a second lap around the text topically to see what the Lord has for us to learn. And we saw last week, particularly in verses 8 through 11, kind of asking the questions, when good disciples go bad? And we saw that in verses 8 through 11. We learned that the Galatians were, if you will, relapsing. Except instead of returning to their original drug of choice, they were trying out a new drug. The spiritual drug pushers of the Judaizers we're encouraging them and promoting them into a euphoria, at least the euphoria of knowing that they had peace with God because of what they do, not because of what another, Jesus Christ, has done in their faith alone and in his work alone by God because of his grace alone. Faith is good, the Judaizers would say, but it's not enough. So taking God's word and twisting it, the Judaizers, like Satan originally did in Genesis 3, twisting God's word and offer a religious drug of religiosity. The law becomes a new savior, not Christ. And remember how damaging we said that this was last week. To try to earn your salvation through biblical morality that will impress Christians around you and you maybe even deceive many of them besides you is actually still an alternative to biblical Christianity. It's not the real deal. Why is this? Because it offers just as much enslavement to an idol, an idol of religiosity. A person is equally lost, but the problem is they're even more deceived. And they cause others to be deceived. Why? Because after all, a lot of their good works are the kind of works that Christians would do if they were Christians. But the problem is they put their hope in those works by their own identity, and they judge others accordingly as well. Seemingly impressive in their morality, they're profoundly self-righteous in their pride and their personal security. If anything, we saw that slavery of religion is being more dangerous because a person who is religious believes they're close to God when they're actually as far away from God as those who would admit so from the very beginning. Now, continuing our text this morning, let's go to our second point. Having seen when good disciples go bad, let's ask the question, when do good pastors get bummed? When do good pastors get bummed? And as I read through the text of verses 12 through 20, look at the progression with me. You're going to see it in verses 12 through 15. 
And then it's going to shift into, 12, into verse 16, and then finally verse 19. So follow along as I read Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Paul writes, Brothers, I entreat you because, excuse me, I entreat you become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first? And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. And my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You'll notice what Paul does here in verses 12 through 15. It really is what I would refer to as the Galatians old pastor. The Galatians old pastor. Who is this old pastor? It's Paul himself. Paul is speaking historically of the relationship he had with them. He wants them to be reminded. He is taking them down memory lane. It is, as I said at the end of last week's text, Paul is basically having saying, hey, you've heard me, now I want you to see me. Taking his head between their, his hands and saying, listen, look at me. Don't you remember the time we've had together? Think about what we've covered. Think about the memories we've shared. How rich that is. Look how he begins this section. He uses this term, brothers. It's a term of endearment. It's first used back in chapter one, verse two, referring to the other Christians who are with Paul in his missionary journey. He refers to himself in verse one, Paul an apostle. And then he says in verse two, and all the brothers who are with me. And he says in verse two, to the churches of Galatia. He goes on to say some things to them and some really hard things to hear, including in chapter three, verse one, oh, foolish Galatians. It's quite serious, quite sober-minded. Like we said many weeks ago, the beginning of Galatians is like no other writing of Paul's. But lest the intention be lost, and lest the relationship be confused, he says here in verse 12, brothers, brothers. Paul understands what they need to make sure they are reminded of. He is speaking to them as family. Now this is remarkable to see, because if you, again, if you go back to chapter one, verse one, he establishes his authority, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul is speaking with apostolic authority, writing to the churches in Galatia. 
And yet here he is with a remarkable sense of humility, also speaking as a peer to them. He wants them to first listen to him and look at him. He is not guilting them into feeling bad. He is appealing to their history and their relationship, their known previous response. The reality of this is endearing. Those who are in Christ are family. Ironically, closer, truly, than even earthly family are. As disorienting as that might be to to some of your senses. Why is that? Because there's a, a shared faith in Christ alone, by his grace alone for the forgiveness of sins. A shared understanding that there is a God who is a creator and that we have sinned against that God and the reality of having sinned against that God that we rightly deserve his condemnation. But God in his grace and his mercy at the appointed time extends to us grace through his son who comes and lives like us being born under the law so that he might fulfill the law and then is sacrificed on the cross in place of us, resurrecting from the grave three days later and appearing to witnesses, ascending to be at the right hand of the Father, and that all those who put their faith in him alone would be forgiven of their sins. And that profound truth takes strangers and makes them family because of that shared faith. And so Paul says something that's not simply unique to him and the Galatians. It's common to every other person in this room who has a shared faith in Christ. Brothers, family, dearly beloved, brothers and sisters together. But then look how he continues to speak to them. He says of them how significant it is of what they need to understand. You come in verse 12, and this maybe is lost on you until now when I highlight it for you. But it's not until Galatians chapter 4, verse 12, that you actually get to, in some sense, Paul's first command to the Galatians. He says, I entreat you, I appeal to you, I I command you. But look at what he says. He says, become as I am, for I have become as you are. Like, what's he talking about? (laughs) This is awfully ironic. A Jewish man is telling a bunch of Galatians, don't be Jewish. In fact, I became like you, a Gentile, in so much as I'm not under the law. For all of those who are in Christ, we're not under the law. Don't don't go to that place. Become as I am. This is the, the whole point of what he's been teaching in the previous chapters. And then look at the history they have here together. He speaks to the reality of how the gospel came. It says in verse 13, because of a bodily ailment, I preached the gospel to you at first. It's not quite clear what happened historically. Different historians have speculated. Is that perhaps Paul was intending to go to some other town, some other place, but due to physical disability, he had to stop off in this region of Galatia, these southern churches of Galatia. And in doing so, he is like, well, I'm here. Let me preach the gospel. And because of his bodily ailment, it prohibited him from going where he had planned to go. This stuff is not known, but we do know that because of his condition, putting him in this place, wherever Paul is, prison or otherwise, he preaches the gospel. The key here, though, is not what he says. It's how they were together. The relationship. He says, you did not scorn or despise me, 
but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. To illustrate that profoundly in verse 15, he says, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Some have speculated, what was Paul's condition? He speaks in 2 Corinthians about a thorn in the flesh. Was, did Paul struggle with bad eyesight? Was he losing his vision? Was he kind of walking around? He had to get someone to help him. What's going on here? Was that his issue? It's not quite clear. In fact, if anything, verse 15 is just an extreme metaphor to say, you would have done everything physically possible to help me, including even gouging out your eyes to give them to me, to help me. Not that the eyes is the problem per se, but that they were that committed and so thankful. Friends, do you remember who brought you the gospel? Perhaps a parent raised in a Christian family. Perhaps a stranger at a bus stop who talked to you and explained to you the gospel. Perhaps a classmate in high school Perhaps somebody sitting here who's a roommate of yours for a number of months or a number of years. Perhaps a coworker. For me, it was a neighbor who moved in next door, renting the house next to us, befriended me. I didn't know why, but I was happy to receive it because he had his own Coke machine in his house <laughs> and a pool table. I had neither. I did not know that he was a new youth pastor moving into town at a church. I was not a church-going guy. I was not raised in that environment. But God used him through a series of months and conversations to lead me to faith in Christ. His name is James Walker. I might have the privilege to introduce you to him one day if he'll come and preach here. He's still in full-time ministry. It's a joy of mine every time to see James. I love James. I've made trips to visit James when he was pastoring in Alpharetta, Georgia, just north of Atlanta. I remember meeting his kids, this is many years later, meeting his staff at his church, and I would basically walk around and be like, your pastor is the man. They'd be like, okay, who is this guy? I mean, we like him, but you're like a little over the top. I felt so just overwhelming historic gratitude that God had used him to bring me to faith in Christ. And I just, I just felt that and still feel that decades later. The Galatians loved Paul. Through God's providence and his physical ailment, God used him to bring them the gospel. And there was a time and place in their relationship where they would have done anything for Paul, anything for him. But look how the tides have changed. Verse 16 Going from the Galatians' old pastor, look at the influence of the Galatians' new pastors, if you could call them that. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, who's the they here? It's these false teachers. These ones have come in after him. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make, make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. You know what's more unpredictable than a rain forecast in Miami? Relationships in high school. Tell me I'm wrong. 
It's not uncommon that the friends you start high school with are not the friends you end high school with. Many times over, perhaps. One of my friends is raising teenage daughters, and every now and then I'm brought in on the drama that my friend has to deal with to help his daughters navigate peer groups. Now, admittedly, I do not have any daughters, though I will soon have a daughter-in-law. But I do have three sons, and I have to say, not declaring favorites by any means, but I only have three sons, and the drama meter I am imagining by comparison to my friend was much less than my household raising my sons. The drama from friend today, not a friend tomorrow. Seems like it cycles back and forth and back and forth. The Judaizers are like these new friends. And they've turned Galatians on Paul. He's not only an old pastor, he's an old friend. And now the things that he teaches them, or that he teaches them rather, he, they now want to discredit. They are now enlightened. But, but look at how the conversation goes. You look at what he says in verse 17. They make, make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Here's the real motive, that you make much of them. The Galatians and their biblical immaturity have been persuaded to drop Paul as their brother and have graduated onto another group of influencing, influencing teachers. And now they reject Paul. They don't have care for him and love for him. Friends, let's be quite clear, lest you maybe don't make the connection. I want to help you make it today. Nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years of church history. This is continually the challenge in pastoring Christians. That on the sidelines of faithful local churches are other organizations that go by the name church, but actually by biblical audit would not necessarily be qualified to be a church. That offer religious teaching that's labeled as Christian, but upon scriptural audit would not seem so Christian. What do I mean? Oftentimes we hear of churches that through their pastors preaching and leadership make much of people. And they're really doing that so that the people will make much of their pastors. How? Well, the glory and the intention, the praise and the honor that should ultimately be on Christ, the resurrected Savior, has shifted. It shifted from the glory of Christ to the, to the glory of the individual to ultimately the glory of the church and its pastors. Why? Because by making much of you as an individual, you will make much of those who made much of you. What do I mean? Well, basically, it's this intersection of the life coach meets local therapist meets pep rally coordinator. Someone that you would say wants to teach you to unlock your full potential, all while validating your feelings, and doing it in an environment that's only upbeat, high tempo, and cheering for more and more while encouraging others to join us in that same type of euphoric religious drug. 
God is on the sidelines of your life clapping for you, cheering for you, wanting to bring all glory to who you are and all that you could still yet be. Be aware of teachers who build you up, who promise to unlock your full potential. It's always a ruse to get you to think much of them because they facilitate you thinking much of yourself. That's exactly what's going on in the text. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, meaning out of the gospel, that you may make much of them. Paul, in his last letter, later to Timothy, would say the following in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Does it, does it shock you that was written 2,000 years ago? It's as if it was like fresh commentary. Now, for thinking about the Galatians' old pastor, Paul, the Galatians' new pastors, the Judaizers, let's continue in verses 19 20 and see a true pastor's goal for his people. Look at verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The imagery here is jolting. I mean, right? I mean, this is pretty graphic. Paul's going from, you know, this idea of like, if you could pull out your eyeballs and give them to me, you would have. To now he's like, I'm like a woman who's in the pains of childbirth again. You're like, wow, what is this pretty graphic? What's going on here? Paul is understandably reaching into human experience and grabbing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and bringing it to us to illustrate how deeply, personally, painfully he longs for them not to love themselves or him, but for Christ to be fully formed in them. That in the likeness of Christ, they would grow, maturing into that reality. This is the manner in which we see sanctification lived out, this sense of labor and the pastor's responsibility to that end. Paul, ironically, you would say, for those of you who have, as women, have had childbirth, you're like, I'm offended by this. What gives the right of a man to grab a hold of childbirth? He doesn't know anything about childbirth. Oh, Paul knows apparently women enough to know what they have communicated as others of you have communicated to us. Not easy. Not a walk in the park. There's a reason why oftentimes medication is used to kind of dumb the overwhelming sense of pain otherwise. Paul, when trying to grab a hold of imagery to communicate to the Galatians how Wrongly, he feels for them. The best imagery he can think of, which is provocative and personal, is to grab a woman who is in childbirth and say, this is how I feel. But notice what he says here. He says, I am again 
in the anguish of childbirth. As like a spiritual mother to them, having to endure birth pains again for the second time. What's he communicating? He's saying that this term here is the recognition that Paul endured suffering when he first evangelized the Galatians. And the reality of whether or not they're in Christ is ultimately seen in when Christ is taking shape in them. And so he's laboring, he's praying, he's hoping that his labor is not in vain, as we saw briefly in verse 11, which we'll return back to again. This is the heart, not only for Paul, for Galatians, this is the heart of every faithful pastor to a people who identifies Christians. This is how you could really honestly say, what does a faithful church look like? There's different ways to answer that question, different ways we should answer. You, you might go in and decide, well, honestly, it's really based upon the seating. It might be, okay, based upon, you know, the child care ministry. It might be based upon the parking, the accessibility of parking. These things that might be, you know, available to you. But, but the question is, how do you know if you're in a good church? Well, this morning, of no planning, we happen to have two pastors here from other churches. We have Pastor Caleb, who's here from the Grove Church in Claremont, Florida, outside of Orlando. We have Pastor Zach, who's here from First Baptist of Weston. Two men that I dearly love and respect. Two churches that have helped support and continue to care for Grace Church. How do you know if these are faithful churches just based on the personality, based upon the friendship? No, because these two men and every other faithful pastor longs to see you grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ, your Savior, and desires by prayer and by preaching, by shepherding and discipling, by the training up of other leaders that Christ might be fully formed in you. Friend, that's just a great way. If you're going to move on, and some of you will, because Miami's got a bit of a transient nature to it, and you're going to go to some other city, and you're going to visit, you're like, okay, I mean, is the preaching biblical? Do I need a Bible? Or can I just like, dude, I could like tune out for 20 minutes and be fine. Do I actually need to know the scriptures? And how do they actually think the person is saved? These are great questions. But you could go up to the pastor and ask the question. You could text him. You could call. And you could say, I'm curious, what's your greatest goal for me? If you could pick one goal for my life, what would you say? It's a fair question to ask a pastor. Paul would say for the Galatians, I would long, long to see Christ formed in you. That's when you know you've got a good pastor. That's the commitment of men like Pastor Chris and Pastor Ronald. They're not here to build up their insecurity campaign of their own self-identity and image. They're not concerned if you even remember their name. But they want you to know Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Now, we take a second lap. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever eaten ribs? Come on, let's see it. Don't be embarrassed. I see all the judgmental from the vegans in the room. <laughs> For those of you who have not had ribs, I would say, in my heavily biased, subjective opinion, you've not lived. You might be judging me and saying, well, it's so that we can let others live. I'm not here to make that judgment. 
I'm simply here to say, as some of you who have had ribs know what it's like to give somebody a rib, especially a child, have them eat it, set it down, and you'd be in conversation, and at the corner of your eye, see that little plate of ribs and go, I, I promise I'm paying attention, but I'm distracted. And why are you so distracted? And you find, just ask the person. You're not done, are you? Well, I mean, I, I thought I was. And you say to the person, you, you know how much meat you've left on that bone? Pick that baby back up and go for a second round. There's some good food there. And depending on how some of you are with your etiquette, you might, if you don't mind, do you mind if I? That depends if you raise a house a lot of siblings, I'm just saying. There's more meat on the bone here in the text, so let's take a second lap around. Let's take another pass. We've gone through it textually. Let's now look at it topically. Let's look at the doctrine of conversion. And to do so, let's return back to verses 8 through 11, particularly verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, again, to put it back in front of our mind, formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world? What you're seeing here in front of your eyes in the text is what is known in sort of biblical summary fashion, the doctrine of conversion, the, the teaching of conversion. And it's, it's so wonderfully simple for us in the sense that it's right there in the text. So you can just see the contrast, right? Formally, verse 8, verse 9, but now. Verse 8, when you did not know God, again, verse 9, you have come to know God. This is a remarkably clear sort of representation biblically of what is the teaching throughout Scripture of the doctrine of conversion. Now, by definition, one theologian, Anthony Hokema, says conversion is this. Conversion may be defined as the conscious act of a regenerate person in which he or she turns to God in repentance and faith. It involves a twofold turning, away from sin and toward the service of God. Well, that's Anthony. We have anybody else? Sure. First Thessalonians. We have the text for you on the screen, but just I'll look at my copy. First Thessalonians chapter 1. A significant text. Paul says in verse 9, how you turned to God from idols. There's the conversion. There's the turning to serve the living and true God. So it's a turning in order to be worshiping and serving. Now, this is where the text really levels up in Galatians 4. And I have to confess to you, last week, I was proud of myself for behaving because I wanted to talk about it then, but I knew we'd get to it. Verse 9. He says, as an explanatory reality of how sinners are saved, he says this in verse 9. But now, you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. 
Now, I realize you have various translations in the room this morning, so you might have some version of that, New King James, New International, New American. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but let me sort of take the different English translations there, bring it down to what's being said by Paul in the original Greek of what he's describing here. What Paul is describing is, yes, they understand when they believe God. So think back, if you can, in your own testimony, for those who are Christians, when you put your faith in God, when you said, oh, I, I know who he is. It's been explained to me, and I believe in him. But Paul cannot help himself in verse 9 to say, yes, but, but there's a feature here I don't want to miss. This feature is not simply one of knowledge. It's, it's simply an information transfer. Oh, God now knows you. No, no, friends. That would be an incomplete and inaccurate understanding of the scripture. They knew God, but it was because God first knew them. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're going to unpack it here. It's because God called them. Now, let's look at the progression of the text. Go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Jump down if you can to verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Jump ahead over chapter 4 to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 8. Just love the sound of this Bible page is turning here. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Again, verse 13, to recognize this, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom but as an opportunity for the flesh. Through love, serve one another. I would even say, friends, if you don't need to turn there, but just hear it, you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, where he describes how they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. He explains how that's possible because earlier in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. This is God's sovereign grace. They knew God because God knew them first. To know means to relate to choosing. Ask Abraham. Did Abraham raise his hand? Pick me, pick me. Or did Abraham say, I, I, I pick you, God. You know what, of all my deity options, I'm going with you. Man, he picked a winner. Israel, considered all the options, all the pagan gods, man, they got it right. Jeremiah, as a prophet, even in the womb? No, this is the biblical reality of God's sovereign grace in eternity, often and understandably mysterious, but nevertheless biblically plain before us. Jesus is having a conversation himself with Nicodemus in John 3. He says in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How is that possible? How is that possible? Good news, the Bible answers it for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us. What does Peter say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
You're in Galatians. You're so close. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you. Just turn your Bible a couple pages to the right. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, just see it for yourself. This is yours and mine, the Ephesians and Paul's testimony. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses in the trespasses and sins. And once you once walked, following after the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay? Look at what it says, if you will, in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, but how? How do you go from dead to life? Verse 4, right in the middle. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul with the Galatians, like he is with the Ephesians, like Peter is, like Jesus is, is saying, do not miss the mysterious but profoundly encouraging reality of God's love for God's people. I mean, just think about this with me for a minute. The Bible portrays salvation not as a working on ourselves, but God's work in us. A biblical conversion is a work of regeneration. It is a recreation. It is a transformation. A book we read together last summer as a church for our summer reading challenge, this summer being Habits of Grace. Last summer was the book, small book, yellow book called Conversion. Let me bring to mind, for those of you who were with us last summer, what we all read, and tell you, for those of you who are not with us, what the pastor, Michael Lawrence, the writer, says in this book, Conversion. He says the following, the spirit doesn't simply make me a singular new creation. He makes me part of God's new creation people. He inscribes God's rule on my heart, teaching me about love for neighbor and love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially. He teaches me that my life with God includes a life with God's people in the corporate worship and common life of the church. That is why John can say that you're a liar if you claim to love God, but do not love your brother. 1 John 4.20, or why Paul can say that we, Jew and Gentile, have already been made one new man, Ephesians 2.13-16. Regeneration gives us a heart not only for God, but also for God's people. Why is this so significant? Because, friends, Galatians is a letter to the church at Galatia, not to the single Christian. And he is reminding all of them what I want to remind you this morning is Grace Church. All the beloved who are in Christ here this morning. This is exactly what God does. Not just in a single individual, but in a group of individuals that God converts. And then guess what God does? He congregates them together. And that's what a local church is. A congregation of a bunch of converted sinners who have been called by God. And they're like high-fiving each other loving it with profound humility and so confident God loves to save sinners because he saved them. They just keep praying to God with confidence. God, do your work even more and save more sinners. Use us, use each other, use us as a church, use 
Bizarre means whatever you determine, Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So God, may the gospel advance, whether it be in prison cells or in local pews here in Miami, that people would hear, perhaps even this morning, the goodness of God in Jesus Christ and be saved. And that be a means by which we see what God has done in their lives. Again, Michael Lawrence helps us here. Quote, the power and truth of the gospel are displayed when churches live differently, pursuing holiness, love differently, forgiving our enemies, and look different, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-economic. We testify to Jesus and his good news when our community of love cuts across the lines of growth that the world expects, a community that can be explained only by the gospel that changes lives. Welcome to Grace Church. This is your first time with us? Yeah, go ahead. You, we feel it. Some of you are like, man, are we allowed to clap here? I mean, I'm from my old days. We could clap. Can we clap here? Come on. You can clap. You can give it up to Jesus. It's all right. Others are like, did we just dishonor God by clapping? God is pleased. That's the expression of your heart. Rejoicing in that reality. As you consider Christ's righteous sacrifice on your behalf, it should make you want to be righteous, want to bring your thoughts, to find any false teaching and eradicate it from your ways of thinking and purify your mind for the love of Christ, for the honor of his word, and for the glory of him and him alone to this watching world. Paul says, this is what I know of you, which is why he's so perplexed. Why this is such a challenge. Standing secure in Christ's holiness fuels your desire to grow in personal holiness. Paul says here, you formerly were like this, but you're now like this. How many of you have this testimony? How many of you do not have this testimony? Your life is still in verse eight, not in verse nine. You, my friend, can write your story in verse nine by what you do in response to today's sermon. Will you repent of your sins, acknowledging your rebellion against God, falling on his mercy and grace, the invitation of forgiveness of sins by trusting in his son and his son alone for your forgiveness? Or will you try to maintain an air of religiosity, try to improve yourself more beyond what you've done already and pledge to try to do better, try harder, be more, and the hopes that at the end, on a curve, he'll grade and accept you. That type of false teaching was the very thing Paul was saying, do not listen to. Only in Christ, but because of Christ, you can be adopted and be a co-heir with Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.